I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. PJ, how are you? What's up, guys? How's it going? What is this show? This show is a sub-show of Playboys. This is a sub-show of Box Boys. And this is Renaissance Renaissance. So, guys, what you do is you have your little Box Boys Russian doll. You open it up. Inside, you've got the Bufanda Boys. You open that one up. Inside, you've got the Playboys. You open that one up. Renaissance, Renaissance, hiding away in Renaissance, there. Renaissance, Renaissance. What's it all about, Dean? Are we talking about the Harlem Renaissance here? What, 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 what are we really getting into here? Well, I've prepared some notes about Renaissance painters. I assume that that's what we're doing today. Well, actually, guys, we're talking about playwrights lost in the golden age known as Renaissance. And now, guys, the Italian Renaissance may have started in the 14th century, but the English Renaissance started around... Um, some say the beginning of the 16th century, some say the middle, and some say the end. So what I thought, what, what we thought is that basically we'd um, discover, well, we, 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 uh, what's the idea of this, Dean? I thought we'd be kind of like a literal kind of, literal archaeologist, right? Kind of digging in and seeing what's there in that time period, any, any hidden gems. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, because here's the thing. We've been doing the Playboys, we've been doing our Shakespeare plays, yeah. And then we thought, well, what else is going on in that time? Like, there's more than just Shakespeare. So let's let's dig in. Let's uh, get a, an idea of the the whole landscape. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, it's not just Shakespeare, guys. It's it's a whole wave of um, of playwrights and poets arriving at that time. So, guys, the and Renaissance people yeah. miss that PJ. You know, people look back at that time period and they just see Shakespeare. You know, and that is a problem. But that's like just like you know, like that's looking back at this time and just seeing uh, J.K. Rowling's or something. I mean, there's more, a lot more out there, guys. Mm-hmm. And the Renaissance is basically Renaissance means born again. So it's just after the the Middle Ages. But what means the Middle Ages? The Middle Ages is this dark period between two two big cultural movements. So you have the fall of the Roman Empire, and then everything goes very religious. And knowledge is not at the forefront. Man is behind God. And basically got a bunch of Italians coming in then the beginning of the 14th century with people like Dante and saying, you know what? We're the gods. We are gods. The human comes first. So this humanistic approach. But that didn't arrive to England until about 100 years later. Actually, most of Europe, most of the world um, took 100 years, 100 years to, to come up not to come up, but to uh, catch up with the Italian fashion sense. Mm-hmm. So basically, guys, these are guys, these are people who are going against this idea of oh, there is no um, 
you know, there is no need to study anything anymore because everything's been studied. Let's just pray. Let's just, you know, let's just serve uh, kings or whatever. And these are guys who actually believe in their human value of humans, that humans can actually come forward, especially with the discovery of America, right? That's a big point as well. That suddenly they discovered there's a whole new world there, new potential. A whole new world, a brave new world, you might even say. A brave new world, we might even say. But to quote you, you, you interested me in something when you said that, you know, Italy was kind of doing that renaissance first and then that we were kind of yeah. following on because there's even for a completely random, obscure example, the Punch and Judy shows. They yeah. came from a 16th century Italian operetta, you know, and, and they became a really famous, you know, English seaside thing. So we took a lot of influence from them in that time period. Definitely, yeah. It just took everyone to kind of uh, catch up. I mean, you had the church fighting against those Renaissance people because they were obviously, uh, you know, they coming from an atheist kind of standpoint. And yeah, and you also had Reformation and Luther appearing. So there were several things kind of hindering Renaissance um, kind of blooming into its full potential. So nowadays you just have with Facebook and TikTok or whatever, you just have one trend, uh, you know, one day after the next but back then guys these were the dark ages it took a hundred years to to follow the trend yeah it took it took a long time you couldn't just you know oh, yeah. move move from day to day on your, uh, your 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 twitters and your tiktoks no it's not that it's not that guys it's a different time period and we decided to start off with the most well it was the most famous play of the uh, what we call we could call it the um the british renaissance perhaps which is Dr. Faustus. The one and only Dr. Faustus. Now, I did get confused because this was uh, Christopher Marlowe. Uh, mm. I mistakenly thought it was Robert Marlowe and spent some time <laughs> looking, and that turned out to be a singer-songwriter. Uh, I, I didn't check out his, his stuff, <laughs> but I was looking around for ages, like, you know, did they name this guy after the playwright? You know, what's going on? Then, oh, no, I got the name wrong, so... <laughs> Well, yeah, and it's confusing as well because you've got Goethe's Faust, which is arguably more famous, and you've got Thomas Mann Faust. So there's several variations. But guys, this is this is by Christopher Marlowe, also known as Kit. And you might know the person, uh, you might know this individual from um, Upturn. Upturn Star Crow. Yeah. Star Crow, yes, for example. Great depiction. I thought a great character. Like, do we think he's really quite so sniveling and quite so anti-Shakespeare? I mean, he might have been, for all I know. I, I don't know. He wasn't really anti-Shakespeare, was he? In the in *Upturn Crow*, but I mean, I I I think he. Um, I like to think that he was a nice, jovial chap who just you know was popular with the ladies, and I like to believe he was a spy as well. So there's a lot of legends, guys, about uh, this chap, and he died very young as well. He was murdered, age twenty-eight. Um. Now the thing is, uh, Dean, what I like, what I find interesting about the story is that they're the same age, more or less, William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. But nevertheless, uh, Christopher Marlowe he just started a lot younger. I mean, he just really like this guy must have been writing age seventeen, eighteen, and started already getting stuff out there. Um, and so what uh, I like, hold on, you're right. Marlowe in the, isn't so anti-Shakespeare. It's um, you're, ah, you're thinking it's of Green. That. It's Robert Green. Robert so that's Green. why I got Robert as well. I got really confused with those. Yeah, no, Robert Green, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Robert Green, guys, was a famous critic at the time who came up with the term "upturn crow." No, but uh, Kit is basically the guy who the idea is that he takes Shakespeare's <laughs> plays and takes yeah, and pretends that they're his plays. So, guys, if you're not 
if you don't know what's going on, let me just explain that Christopher Marlowe, he wrote a lot of plays and became famous before Shakespeare became famous. He died before Shakespeare became famous in 1593 and Shakespeare's just starting. And this guy, um, but there's some debate nowadays that Shakespeare might have written under the pseudonym Christopher Marlowe or that Christopher Marlowe just took Shakespeare's plays or whatever. There's, a, there's this idea that this person might never have existed or they didn't write plays because he was more active as a political spy. Mm. Well, tell me this, PJ. I mean, after, after just uh, reading one, I mean, I don't feel that way. I, I see they're wildly different from Shakespeare. What do you totally think? Totally right. No, definitely. It's a completely different style, isn't it? I mean, um, I mean, w- w- what struck you the most? That What struck you was like, oh, this is definitely not Shakespeare. This was something else. Uh, I mean, the whole, the whole vibe, the whole feeling, the whole atmosphere yeah. is, is totally different. And I was saying to you earlier that um, I, I find it a, a much more um, small scene kind of play in the sense that yeah. a lot of it, it's, it's, it's one main character. And yes, yeah, some people come and go and chat with him. But if you imagine one of those old TV shows where you basically got one character and then like a yeah. cast of people coming in and talking to him, that's what it was like. Um, it's very, very central and very focused like some of the earlier Greek tragedies, actually. Um, it's not as, you know, Shakespeare's plays have a lot going on. And mm, this totally. is not like that. Although technically it does cover a wider geographical area. He's moving around. He goes to see the Pope at one point. You know, they do move around actually a bit. But actually the um, the focus of the play is very, very narrow. And it, and it is quite a short mm. play as well. So what, well, let's just begin by starting off what the story is about. Uh, do you want to do the honours or should I? Sure. So... We effectively have Dr. Faustus. Um, he's, uh, you know, he, he is a doctor. He's a kind of scholar. And he, um, you know, starts to dabble with some uh, some black arts, effectively. And he makes the uh, proverbial deal with the devil. And the idea is that he will have um, a kind of demon servant for for 24, Me- Me- Mephistopheles, right? For 24 yeah. years. Exactly. And after that, he gives his soul to Lucifer, effectively. Exactly. And, well, that's where very well explained, actually. I would, would have taken ages to explain that. That's basically the story. And um, so what's what struck me is maybe the story, you've heard this kind of story before. Okay, but I mean, don't forget, this was written around um, 1589 to 1592, before Shakespeare, guys, just to remind you again. And... Um, Anyway, I, I really love this story because it's kind of like there is a medieval element to it, a, a fear of the devil and God, but there's something very humanistic about this. So, I mean, Christopher Marlowe, he was a lot more, I mean, he's known as a more of an academic, a Cambridge poet, basically. Shakespeare yeah. wasn't considered academic. I mean, Shakespeare really, I know it's hard to read nowadays because it seems... It's because it's outdated, essentially, like a lot of the references. But Shakespeare was just, he just had a very basic Latin-based education, whereas Marlowe had a proper, a lot more in-depth education. And you can see it. It's a lot more, it's suppose it's a lot more intellectual, Dr. Faustus. I mean, there's so it's much more Latin intellectual it is. And yeah. a lot, oh my God, the Latin, the needless the Latin. Latin. <laughs> so much Latin, guys. Yeah, I mean, I read an annotated version because, I mean, I'm not, I can't learn Latin. Not a bit of Latin, but I can't learn all the Latin you need to read this play guys so it can be difficult to read at times um would you say that we you know despite its short length i I don't think i would necessarily recommend this to someone who hasn't read any plays at the period before 
I would certainly be recommending some of Shakespeare's easier works before yeah, I would say, recommend this. I'd say Shakespeare first, guys, then move, uh, then move back to uh, Dr. Faustus. But yeah. I have to say, it was very gripping, and Marlowe, he... It's very different to Shakespeare, because I feel like Shakespeare wasn't suitable for the time. It was kind of like Shakespeare was suitable for the existentialists and for the romantics. This idea of, like, inner agony and, like, oh, doubt in, in for example, doubt in Hamlet or even Rome and Juliet, this these characters are very existential. That wasn't really fitting. I mean, Dr. Fausto's, yes, there is some existentialism in it as well, but I feel like characters in uh, Chris and Marlowe's plays, they take big action. Uh, yes, big they action. Big, they take big action. Yeah, it was very different to Shakespeare. So they're very heroic, even though this is a tragedy, essentially. But they take huge action with no room, basically, for much inner reflection although saying that thing there is a lot of inner reflection in dr faustus specifically right i mean that's an essential part of it i find where especially at the beginning and the end it's just him talking him debating should he do this should he not do it and there's a good angel an evil angel appearing yeah and he's well, he, here's the thing pj there's reflection but i don't know if i would call it true reflection like there's a few mm. times where he doubts his decision but he still presses on with it you know it's he not like he doesn't change his mind it's not at all like Hamlet, which just goes on and on about self-doubt. And it's just Hamlet would have, I just feel like Hamlet would have been written in the 1940s, you know, if Shakespeare yes. hadn't written. But Dr. Faust is very suitable for his time, I feel like, because it's got a very kind of, um, it's got this humanist kind of theme of can, how, how far can man go? I think that was a big story at that time around the discovery of, you know, because America is being discovered and they're starting to let go of religion and going against the church. How far can man go? Can man actually go to the point of, of like actually becoming a god? And and you know, and just because Faustus guys, he wants he wants to achieve something. He wants to achieve total power over the world. He wants to become god basically by sort of becoming a devil basically. That's yeah, did, did, I mean, I'd never, I'd never heard of this play until you told me to read it. I'll be honest with you. And okay. the sub, the subject matter really shocked me. And that was something very different from from Shakespeare or from, I assume, the majority of works in this time period. I mean, I thought yeah. it was it was very rebellious uh, subject matter. I, I wouldn't think that would be the norm. Oh, guys, yeah, this is basically like uh, I don't know. You're watching Shakespeare, and it's like watching a again like a French New Wave movie, and then you then you go to the next next day to the cinema and you watch a slasher film it's a bit like that with christopher marlowe i feel i mean christopher marlowe they say that also he was a bit more exploitative i suppose with his subject themes because he kind of seemed to have gone with what the crowd really wanted and what the, the these people wanted in 50 in the 1590s and good old they, uh, good old lucifer exploitation genre yeah yeah, the Lucifer exploitation, John. Yeah, they, no, they, they love the violence. You see, they really, they really wanted the violence and like these crazy exotic subject matters. I mean, Shakespeare wasn't the first with creating, was putting a, an exotic setting. That kind of started a bit earlier, but it's very much an Elizabethan drama thing. I mean, this is set in Germany. Um, uh, Tamburlaine is set in um, all across Asia. You know, the Jew of Malta is obviously set in Malta, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean. Marlov also takes an exotic scene and without really knowing much about the culture, to be honest. I mean, he, I mean, it's not very geographically accurate a lot of it. Mm. 
I think that's okay. For the time period, you get away with that. You know? No, but Shakespeare the same. Shakespeare never traveled. I mean, that's very typical of the time period. Right? No yeah. one really was accurate at all. But, but I mean, what... it, it really shocked me, dude. I, I wasn't expecting a play about, about devils. I wasn't expecting someone to make a deal with, <laughs> with the devil. And just that, you know, and to, to issue God and, and religion and kind of go their own way. I mean, I thought that was a, a very modern uh, theme for, for, for media. I really didn't think expect that from a sort of, you know 16th century play at all i i think it was suitable for the time but like as i as i mentioned i think it was just kind of like us oh, like these guys were kind of getting onto something and then there was immediately repressed when reformation and luther uh, appeared and the anti uh contra reformation and stuff like that i think you had a very small time period of like everyone becoming an atheist and everyone rebelling around that time, around the 1590s in England and earlier in Italy. And I think, I think just Marlow just took that opportunity, wrote this play. That's very kind of, it's, it's a zeitgeist of the period. It's very much relevant to the 1590s England. And I think this, this is like an accurate, an accurate emotional depiction of uh, what people felt at that time, like kind of like a hellish kind of feeling of, of like, oh, all oh, right, so we have to take control, or all oh, right, yeah, well, if if we're not going to talk about God, let's talk about the other side, devil, mm. and basically taking control. Shall we talk a little bit about the Dramatis Personae? Who's actually in this play? So we have we have Faustus, and he has two friends and a, a servant kind of boy, uh, um, Wagner. So we have that, and that's that's pretty much your your key cast. Like, and, yeah. you know, there's there's not a big cast. This is not a you know a thirty person play like some of the Shakespeare's get to. You get a very small core cast. Then we have the angel and devil that we mentioned, or the well, I bad mean angel, the, the good angel, angel, the bad angel. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm now picturing a Looney Tunes with the angel and devil on your shoulder. But uh, <laughs> do do we think that he, did um, did this play invent that? Maybe. Uh, oh, it's a good question. Actually, um, it'd be interesting. I'd be interesting to know yeah. that actually. But he has the good angel and bad angel that kind of appear maybe three or four times throughout the play, but just for. Yeah just for, you know, 10 lines at a time, they're not key characters. They just kind of appear. And those are his inner monologue. Those are basically his conscious saying, should I do the good thing or should I not? And then he always kind of decides to press on with the bad thing. Then we have um, the other main character, I suppose, is the the demon that um, that he makes the deal with, really, which is, I can't pronounce this, Me- Mephistopheles. Yeah, um, so Mephistopheles, he makes the deal and he basically says, you know, you're going to be my servant instead of Lucifer's and I'll sign the contract in my own blood and blah, blah, blah. So that's the other main character. And then we do see in one brief scene, Lucifer and Beelzebub and the seven deadly sins and various miscellaneous devils. So a lot of hellish characters actually in the play. Uh, I love hellish characters and I like, and, and he, he keeps kind of resurrecting, not resurrecting actually, but he keeps bringing in demons who kind of portray different characters from history like helen of troy and, you see helen uh, of troy yeah the this play gave us the famous quote which shakespeare himself actually borrowed the face that launched yeah. a thousand ships yes yes and that's uh, to describe helen i mean um yeah do you want do you want to it's basically goes um was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of ilium ilium being ilium. of course troy Ilium, yes. Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Oh, and, and yes, and that reminds me, it's very sexual. My God, say it's very sexual. I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. That is really kind of just, my God, because, okay, obviously, 
he's getting into the seven sins and all that. But I mean, I, I just wasn't expecting all that because really Faustus, he almost several times becomes, you know, wants to go away from this. He always wants to go back to God, but then like he just gets Helen of Troy and, and she becomes his wife basically. And yeah, it's very, very vivid language. I mean, it is sexual. There's only one brief scene that Faustus isn't actually in. And we have two people who find one of his books. And the first thing he says is, I'm going to use this magic book to get all the maidens to come naked before me, you know, and that'll be fun. So there is a sexual element to the play. Oh, and there's also, uh, Wagner also tries to become, uh, what we can call kind of a wizard. That's a very comic scene, actually, between Wagner and a sort of a clown figure. So Wagner is his uh, apprentice. And so there's also some comic there's also some comic scenes in in this play. Actually, it's not fully a tragedy, and um, yeah, I love it. But it basically starts off, guys, with uh, Wagner saying, "Not Wagner, sorry." It's basically starts off with Doctor Faustus kind of saying he studied everything, he's tried everything, but nothing makes him content. So it starts off with this with the phrase, "Settle thy studies, Faustus, and begin to sound the depths." of that thou wilt profess. And it's just basically, it's this humanitarian renaissance man, hungry for knowledge, but actually just going beyond that. He's just not satisfied with any of it. So he talks about analytics and law and religion and nothing, and nothing satisfies him because he wants to basically know everything. Is this a fair comparison, BJ? Would you say that... You know, I mean, I'm assuming that Marlowe's plays are generally like this, but based on the one I've read, I feel like Marlowe is to Shakespeare what Balzac is to Dickens. You know, we're talking mm. similar style, similar time period, but just grittier Definitely. and darker, you know. Definitely, yeah. And you're just mentioning Father uh, Goria. Yeah, uh, and Balzac and Marlowe came a bit before Dickens and Shakespeare, but Dickens and Shakespeare kind of maybe, uh, they blossomed uh, more, you know what I mean? So sometimes it's not it's not always guys the the ones who invent the genre who come first. Sometimes it's the ones that follow after that mm-hmm. kind of perfected. Did yeah. you think that it, I mean for such a short play, it it I thought it lost its way a little bit near the end. Now, I think it you're did, gonna disagree. Oh you, you agree. Because no, you know agree, yeah. there's the random scene where he's just you know, he goes to visit the Pope and just mm-hmm. moves his food around while being invisible. Yeah, and that, that goes nowhere. That's... Yeah, and then there's the bits with you know he wants to see Helen of Troy and whatever else, but I feel like he lost his way a little bit from the the first half is quite quite um, logically kind of follows on in a story, and then they just throw in a couple of sort of random bits, you know. And I didn't enjoy that too much because I thought, wow, this is very deep kind of because you got the he's kind of debating, especially at the beginning. He's like, oh, what should I choose? And he's like talking about all these sciences, and it's very interesting. And uh, just, just the way he expressed himself is very kind of poetical and I love it. And, but then, but then, yeah, he decides to do it and then he doubts and that's still interesting. And he talks with the devil. I mean, that's all fascinating, but then it just seems like these random episodes that basically 24 years pass guys and you get these random episodes, like scenes and they seem just very irrelevant. And what I don't like about Dean is that he seemed like such a four dimensional character. And all of a sudden he's just this, like buffoon characters just like doesn't seem to yeah. repent at all in those 24 years and just having fun but that that i mean like i really enjoyed that doubt which was almost like hamlet going in that direction i mean but all of a sudden it became very basic then near the middle near the end as well yeah 
Yeah, except not it, not the last scene, way a little bit. Oh, the, the last, last so the very last scene, we oh. we jump ahead, you know, to his twenty four years having expired, yeah. and I don't want to certainly say what happens, but it's a very yeah. powerful scene. I think it's a good ending. Oh, oh yeah, I love it because I mean that must have been insane to watch as a you know as someone who'd not seen something like that before. Did, did you know that live? There are, there... There are legends, supposedly, that people just start screaming when they watched um, this play. I would that, not be surprised. <laughs> and, and you have to, you have to understand, guys. They didn't have cinema. They didn't have Wes Craven, or you know, or or you know, or, or Fulci. They didn't have any of those horror movies. No one saw any of this. And all of a sudden, you're just there on stage, and you have like ten demons. All of a sudden, I mean, at one point, there's literally Lucifer and Beelzebub bringing on a parade of the seven deadly sins whilst being attended by other devils. Like, it's just, people wouldn't have known what the hell was going on. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, guys, I, I really enjoyed that. I, specifically, that I just enjoy when they they represent some theme of religion and they personify it. And you got mm. the seven deadly sins. And to be honest, like, that's the best understanding I ever had of the de- of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. When I, when I read well, that. Well, it's interesting. You don't, you don't hear a lot, you know, in modern, in modern parlance, you know, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, yeah. they're all just kind of the same, the same person. But it's interesting yeah. to go back a little bit and see before, before that kind of uh, everything just kind of meshed into one, you know? And don't forget, this is essentially a, a tale of morality. It's essentially a tale kind of warning the, hu- it's, it's a bit ironic because, all right, so Marlowe is a humanist, but it's kind of also warning the humanist person of like, don't go too far. You're not actually God, which is a bit... Um, it was a bit ironic because that's exactly what humanism is about. We are gods, but this is saying, yeah, but don't dabble in stuff that's beyond you. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like two two opinions happening there. Now, do you think because we we did say that you know the second sort of half it loses its way a little bit? Do you think if we'd read the expanded version, would those scenes have not seemed quite as random? Maybe there would so, be a bit more place setting for them. So there are two versions, guys. One is. Um, uh, one is just slightly longer and more detailed. No, I believe it's just more detailed in the descriptions. I believe, Dean. Okay. Uh, for example, so we don't, we don't think that like, there's more more setting for those scenes, just expanded dialogue and things. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's it. Just especially the descriptions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and guys, this is a tragedy. The tragedy, I think, and I don't know if you agree, but I think the tragedy here is again, like just kind of reminding me of Hamlet. Is it is the tragedy is that. Yes, he succumbs to the devil and he and he signs a contract, guys. It's very important actually. He signs a contract saying that what he mentioned is that the soul will be given to the devil. But the tragedy is not that the tragedy is basically that if he only said to God, um, please forgive me and I repent, he his soul would have been saved. I mean, the play indicates that everyone in the place knows this. Everyone in the place knows this, even Mephistopheles. Even Mephistopheles, he kind of says, oh, if thou knows what heaven was like when I was there, you'd never be starting this nonsense. And then Dr. Faust is like, oh, you know, shut, shut, shut you up, you little fiend. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And- <laughs> and at one point, they basically say that, you know, anything that isn't heaven is hell. Like Earth, you know, compared to oh, heaven, yeah. might as well be hell. Oh, yeah, that's right. And the tragedy is basically that the ego of... Um, uh, of uh, Dr. Faust stands in the way that if he actually believed that if he actually believed in repentance and of, of God forgiving him, then he would, he, he, the devil would have no power. And it's always indicated that in the play. And um, by the way, uh, Dean, I don't know, did you know that this was a kind of a Protestant theme at the time, particularly a Calvinist issue? Um, this kind oh, of- no, I, I didn't. 
so yeah so calvinism guys was just around the corner wasn't just around the corner was already there at the point and a lot of people were debating the whole kind of reformation and martin luther we talked about in hamlet actually because it's a similar kind of theme going on with dr faustus and hamlet both both seem to be a kind of protestants never mentioned specifically but they have a protestant mindset of um of so basically an educated religious mindset which goes against both uh, which goes which goes against the idea of you you can decide your life because in the end if you're catholic you repent and you're forgiven by god but if you're a protestant it's a big belief that your your um, your life is already predestined for you in particular in calvinism so the idea is that if dr faustus is a protestant inside if he has this Protestant belief system, even not, not being religious, but he's got this new religious uh, belief that no matter what he does, he is damned for hell, which is very different to Catholicism. So basically, even if he forgave, um, even if the Pope forgave him, uh, Dr. Faust would still believe, no, no, I, um, I'm predestined. So it's basically free will against uh, predestination. So he thinks he doesn't have free will, but the irony is he does have free will. Just any second, he could have decided in those 24 years to stop. To go back to the way, yeah, he could. He does a free will. He could have chosen to stop. He always chooses the wrong decision, and then he regrets it at the end. But everyone regrets it at the end. You know, if if I kill someone and I'm doing fine until they find out and put me in jail, at that time you regret it. You know, everyone regrets it when it's too late. But that that's not him making the right decision. Totally right. I know. I think it's a fascinating play, just like Hamlet. um, It's just both both heroes just could have just could have done something to change life and they just don't and that's why i feel like both both plays have got great monologues just just mm-hmm. go on and on but it's fascinating to read but at the same time you think oh you're why don't you take action yeah and can i mentioned you even, this about can you even call Foster a hero um you see like in our model of plays you've got a, a, a person um making big decisions and actually being a, a heroic figure was a bit different to Shakespeare. But no, I believe Dr. Faustus becomes um, a tragic hero in a sense. But he does become, does become a hero. He is at the beginning. Yeah. He's not an anti hero either because I'm not sure exactly. More, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky. But it's, it's, it's a tragic hero, I suppose, because we really feel for him, you know, and he's really, he's, he's, he's very ambitious. You know, the Marlowe's characters are very ambitious, way more ambitious mm. than Shakespeare. But I, 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 you feel for him to a, to an extent. Yes. But I didn't particularly like him. You know, he, he made the wrong decisions at no point. Did I think, you know, I hope it turns out well for him. I, I, I thought, you know, I didn't know how it would end, whether it be a twist or not, but yeah. you know, if he gets his comeuppance, I wasn't, you know, eh, tough luck, you know, you made your own decision kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, I felt for him, but I know what you mean. It's kind of um, his ego was just too big, guys. It's it's kind of like he he thought he knew everything, and then came his downfall. And yeah, for twenty four years of um, ba- basically being able to do what he wanted for eternal damnation, basically that's the story, guys. Uh, I I really recommend. I thought it's a great, fascinating read. It's a good one. If you have some, you know, if you've read any Shakespeare, you have some grasp on the kind of language then read this one. I, I wouldn't say to pick it as your first one, um, but it, it's not super accessible despite being a shorter play. Um, but it is a really powerful play. And um, I, I do think it's worth the read if you're, if you're interested in that time period. And, and if you're interested in devil 
you know, and demon depiction in literature. I mean, if you like, for example, Master Margarita, one of my favorite novels, it's about the devil and the Soviet Union. Um, my God, you can definitely see that Mikhail Bulgakov, for example, the author of Master Margarita, he, he must have studied this play in depth. I mean, this is a very, this is kind of like a very relevant uh, study, I feel like, if you're into that kind of uh, fiction or uh, uh, even in films, for example, the depiction of devils and demons. I find them fascinating. I'm very fascinated by mm. by spirits in fiction. Mm-hmm. And this was very fascinating for me. Very, very different from when we saw, you know, Ariel in, in Shakespeare, for example. You know, the, totally this right is a it. whole new level. But yeah, um, totally. the, the play that it most reminded me of was Prometheus Bound, the, the first extant Greek play by Aeschylus. Um, because oh, that's nice. a very simple play with few characters. Prometheus is literally bound, so he can't move during the play. And different characters come to him. So it kind of reminded me of that a little bit, uh, particularly in the first half, you know, before we Because start everyone comes to Dr. Faustus kind of, yeah. I mean, like, at the beginning at least, totally. Yeah. Wow. Well, PJ, I think that'll do us for today, but we've already picked out our second one for this miniseries, right? Uh, I believe we have, yes. It's the great, the one and only. Do you want to say it? Uh, no, I was relying on you saying it because I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, you're <laughs> It's the, the one in classic... Tamburlene. So it's basically um, the big epic play that started, guys. It, this play actually started the idea. Uh, it started the epic play. It revived the epic play. And as soon as this was performed, everyone crazy in England and just started to imitate this big adventure play of this big hero who could just conquer the world that wouldn't stop. So this is a true Marlovian character of just... I'm not going to stop until I've got the whole world. The same, actually, as Dr. Faust does, even though he loses it in the end. But this is their characters are just they just they're just so hungry. It was very different to Shakespeare, I find. Those are characters that, yeah, they kind of peckish and they might dabble. So mm-hmm. guys. And we're doing part one first, right? It's a two, it's a two-part play, actually. It's a two-part play, Tamberlin the Great. In fact, at the end, I don't know if you know, but it seems to be one of the most um uh, they, they say it's one of the most impossible plays to perform because this play actually has such a huge character set all over Asia. It's all over the place. Can't wait to get into it. Um, yeah, so it's a challenging play to perform, challenging play to discuss, but I'm up for a challenge. I would really, I would really, really love to see Dr. Faustus performed, actually. I don't yeah, know if that's, that. if that's still done, though. Yeah, it is. It's a relatively popular, relatively popular play for, for more of, unlike Tamberly and the Great. Um, oh, it would be such a performance, wouldn't it? I mean, you could—I I could just imagine all the lights flashing and demons popping by. Yeah, and... that last scene especially. I, I need oh, to see wow, that. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, just just read it. It's such a great read. It's so so thrilling. Uh, Tamburlaine, I can tell you, Tamburlaine may be long, but it's also just as gripping and yeah, it's very epic. Uh, I find Marlowe. Uh, so, I've just checked here. I mean, part one alone is already longer than today's play. Yeah, exactly. so it you know overall it is uh, it is long, but that's fine. It's, it, it, guys, if you like Lawrence of Arabia and those kind of films, those kind of epic, if you like Dumas as well, if you like Slosh, um, Swashbuckler. Oh, well, who doesn't like Dumas? Who doesn't like Dumas? Exactly. Well, then thou should like Tamburlaine. Starting with part one, guys. Tune in next time. Oh yeah. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 